This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it has been a privilege to be part of CARTA for the last 10 years, and for the 10 years before that, the La Jolla Group for Explaining the Origin of Humans. Over those years, I've been extremely impressed with Ajit's leadership. He has really been an ideal uh, leader for this group as it's grown. And I've also been impressed with his uh, modesty, that whenever uh, you know, someone would praise him uh, on occasion, he would say, no, no, it's uh, my team, my loyal team, really, that uh, is responsible. And uh, of course, he's right. It does take a village. But I think his leadership was absolutely essential. Now, we've already heard so much about uh, the uh, differences between uh, brains of uh, squirrel, monkey, macaque, ch- chimpanzee, and human, and the, the fact that uh, you know, there are so many differences uh, that it's really hard to know where to start. But uh, if you look at the different levels of investigation, uh, starting at the bottom here, uh, from the molecular level, we've seen differences in genes, for example, Uh, From uh, Evan's talk, we've heard from Katerina differences in the shapes and sizes of neurons and how they're organized in maps. And, and, you know, there there really are, where do you start to look for these uh, essential differences like language, which is species-specific? Now, most of what we know about how neurons represent the world has come from Recordings from single neurons, as shown here, this is a Golgi stain, and that's a microelectrode, which is uh, picking up a signal. And back in the 1960s, we already knew from the work of Hubel and Weasel that uh, if you look for this visual stimulus that was the provided uh, that neuron with the with the highest response, that uh, th- there were a bunch of cells he ca- they called simple cells that were oriented. That is to say, would respond best to a bar of light or an edge. And furthermore, at every location in the visual field, there were different neurons that represented different orientations. Well, that was a taste of what happened. This is an, ex- an experiment that launched a 1,000 microelectrodes into every part of the cortex. And so we, we have a, a, a pretty good understanding now of the different response properties in all those 183 areas. But the question is, how do they compute? And this is a question that Pat Churchland and I, who will be speaking later, uh, took on in a book that was published over 25 years ago. This is the uh, second anniversary edition. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very different computing style compared to a digital computer. A digital computer is uh, one instruction at a time. The brain works on all, in parallel. All the neurons are working all the time. Uh, in a digital computer, each transistor is connected to a few others. A typical neuron is connected to thousands of others. So this is really a different style of computing. And what we concluded, and this is from work that was done uh, in the 80s on neural network models, what we concluded is that uh, there is a population principle here. We have to understand how do many neurons together uh, represent the complexity of the world and the combinatoriality that we heard from David. Now, I want to go way back. This is my way back machine. 
uh, and this is in that era in the 80s, this is one of the, I would say, biggest, more complex networks. Uh, had about 200 model neurons, very simple models, integrate the input, uh, the synapses that connected them uh, had a variable strength or weight. And, and, and there were three layers. There was one at the bottom that represented the words, in this case, that was text to speech. And the output was the phoneme. So the idea was for every letter in the middle here, the C, to associate it with the correct phoneme, the hard C, the K and cat. And uh, it's a very difficult problem. English is very irregular. There are a lot of rules. You know, when the, there's an E at the end of a, of a word, it's a hard vowel, like gave, brave. But there are exceptions, like have behaves irregularly. <laughs> and so uh, this is a, a project, summer project for, uh, from uh, Charlie Rosenberg, who was a student of George Miller, a very famous linguist. And this is one of the very, you know, very first uh, attempts to put language into a network. So I'm going to, there's a learning process. And this is really what the, the magic sauce, is the fact that there's a way to change the weights sequentially. If, if the output is incorrect, you then take that difference, which, you know, what, what, the, what was the uh, correct output, compare it from the teacher, and then fiddle with all the weights. And I won't go into any of the details because this has now become a high art and uh, there's much better ways of doing it. Okay, so... Here we go. I'm going to play what the output look, sounds like during the very beginning. And the first thing it picks up is the difference between vowels and consonants. And you will hear this. Okay, so it kind of babbles. <laughs> and that's the first order property. But we left it on overnight. It got better and better and better. And now I'm going to play what it sounded like the next morning on a piece of text. We, we trained it on a dictionary and a piece of text here. It's never seen before. So let's see what it sounds like. Me know I'm like or something. When we walk home from school, I walk home with two friends and sometimes we can't run home from school now. Because well, this, it was, this was stunning. It's, it spoke for itself. But, uh, but what's surprising you know, to, to us was, uh, in retrospect, is how small this network was by comparison with today's networks that have not hundreds of units, but millions of units. And, uh, and, and for the experts, uh, what was surprising is that the best work being done in phonology at the time was rule-based, which is to write down a bunch of rules for all that I already gave you, the you know, final E. There are thousands of these rules. In fact, there's a book that we got from the library that had 250 pages of rules and exceptions and rules for the exceptions and so forth and because it, it's a very uh, heterogeneous language. Okay, fast forward. Now this is like 30 years later and we now have networks, as I said, that are uh, you know, much, much uh, larger but the, 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 the feature that makes them really powerful is not the number of units but how they're organized in an architecture. Now, this particular architecture is the most uh, successful of all the networks that have been developed. It's called the convolutional neural network. And you will remember the simple cells that I told you about that Hubel Weasel described. Uh, well, those simple cells do mathematically what's called a convolution. It's if you take the filter and you move it across the visual field, one neuron for each location. 
okay, well, in, in this particular convolution neural network, that was hardwired, the, the fact that you're going to have the same weights over the entire visual field. That saves a lot of weights. You only have to learn the convolutional weights once. But there are many, many layers. It's in a hierarchy. You know, in this case, uh, there were probably about 12 layers uh, in the early uh, days. Now there's like 200. But, uh, but in any case, 12 is about what you see in the human cortex in terms of the hierarchy of visual areas that you saw in some of the previous slides. Now, there was a lot of other things he put in here. And he only kept them if they actually improved performance. But he ended up putting in complex cells, which are also found by Hubel and Weasel. Uh, he also uh, gained normalization for each of the filters. Uh, and then the nonlinearity. A, 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 neurons have a threshold below which there is no output. So you put all that in and, and improved it, got it better and better and better. And finally, uh, it reached the point where it was outperforming humans on very large data sets, very large problems. And I'm going to give you a few examples, but just to give you a sense for what was happening over, you might say, why did it take 30 years, right? Well, the reason is that when we started in the 80s, computers were very weak compared to today's, and it was very costly. Uh, it, was, it was cheaper to program them. But now that turned over in 2012. It's, computing power is incredibly more powerful by factors of you know, millions. And it's cross, so it's now, it's easier to get, collect big data and to train a network on any problem than it is to write a program, which is, has to be a different program for every problem, very costly. Okay, well, here's the result of a, that uh, convolutional neural network that was published in uh, the Neural Information Processing Systems uh, Conference, annual conference. Uh, this was about uh, six or seven years ago. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, this was the first indication that this was going to actually have an impact on the real world. If we just look at the top left, uh, you'll see that the confidence in the top five words is indicated by the length of the bar. It gets mite right, it gets the container ship right, the motor scooter right, and leopard right. Now, in the bottom left, you know, the label, the human label is grill, but, you know, this is a convertible. The grill is just a part of it. In fact, this is, uh, it, it's an, uh, the, the, the net said it was agaric, and in fact, it turned out that that is the subtype of mushroom. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's actually smarter than the human. And is that, you know, you see cherry, I see Dalmatian. And finally, uh, the last one is uh, mislabeled as a cat. It's not a cat. It's a ringtail lemur. And so it was, uh, the, that category was not in the database. Uh, and so it thought it was a monkey. So here we go. It's doing pretty well. Now, just labeling things doesn't mean that it understands what it's seeing, right? That, this is just a feed-forward network. Uh, so the, the next question is, can you train a network to describe what's in the image? So, for example, here's an image on the left, and it looks like it's a, a market, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that are being sold, and here is a, here is a possible uh, label uh, or a caption, a group of people shopping at an indoor market. How did it create that label? Well, it passed the labels up to a recurrent network that has feedback and has attention that was put in, something we also know is important for our brains, 
And here we go, on the bottom here, a woman is throwing a Frisbee, and you see Frisbees highlighted in a park. A dog is standing on a hardwood floor. Dog highlighted, a stop sign highlighted. So this is really crazy. How could, it's correct syntax. There's no syntax box in this network. Somehow it had learned from examples. And I'll give you now an insight into how it solved these problems. Uh, so first, this is an even simpler network whose job was simply to predict the next word in a sentence. It was trained on millions and millions of articles, you know, just newspaper articles. And now what you can do is, for every word, if there's 100,000 units in this particular network, for every word, the activity pattern in those 100,000 neurons is a vector in this 100,000-dimensional space. And now you could do cluster analysis. And what you discover is that all of the country names are clustered in one little piece of the space. All of the capitals are clustered in another part of space. But what's even more remarkable, I mean, this is a semantic representation in that network. What's even more remarkable is that if you connect the vector from Portugal to Lisbon, that's, that's an arrow. And if you lift that arrow up to Italy, it points to Rome. And, 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 and in other words, there's, it's relationships, not just uh, you know, words, but how the words are related to each other. Now, I'm not going to go into the details except to say that this has also been used for temporal problems like language translation. And you can have an app now in your pocket, in your smartphone, that will take pictures in one language and translate it into another uh, using this, in case, Google Translate. When you analyze that network, it's even more uh, rich and astonishing. For example, look at that cluster of red points. Each of the points is you know, one of the words in the sentence. And, and this was a network that was trained to do translation from English to Korean and English to Japanese and back. And what you can see is that the three languages outlined in color here are in the same part of the space, but slightly different tracks. And so that means that there's the, the meaning, the meaning of the sentence is being clustered. Now, to really see whether or not uh, there is generalization going on here, it was never trained on Korean to Japanese or back. The question is, without doing any further training, how well does it do? It gets it correct. It translates between two languages. It's never been told how to do the correspondence. And the only way I can explain this is that somewhere the network has created a new language within the hidden layer. In this case, there were like 20 of them. And by the way, also, uh, it was absolutely essential to put in uh, uh, working memory, which is important because there's long-range dependencies in, in these uh, sentences. So the last word may be important for the first word coming out in the new language. So the, is there an interlingua? Is there something inside the network? that is telling us something fundamental about the nature of language. And that this is all just unfolding really fast. And if you're interested, I have a book. <laughs> it just came out last October, but it tells this story in much greater detail, both about the history, the past, where we are now. There's dozens of learning algorithms. The brain has been an incredibly important inspiration. And then finally, where is this heading in terms of the applications, impact on science, uh, it's, it's really an exciting time to be alive. And I'm going to end with or even more exciting thing that's happening in neuroscience. So we have tools now that allow us to record from thousands and thousands of neurons simultaneously using optical techniques. 
And this is an experiment that was done by Ralph Greenspan, by Sophie Amon, who then worked in my lab to analyze the data because there's terabytes of data. It's possible with a light field microscope to record from all the neurons in the fruit fly brain at the same time while it's behaving. And uh, I won't go into the details except that a lot of things that are known about fly brains can actually be seen in the activity patterns that I'm about to show you. So the fly, as you can see, is walking. And if you, the brain's on the right, looking down at it. That's a protocerebral bridge in the middle that sometimes goes on. It's grooming, a different set of neurons goes on. And this is really a miracle. I, mean, I never would have thought in my lifetime that something, you could look into a brain of an animal while it's behaving and see all the neurons as they flash up. Uh, but now, this is uh, the Chinese curse, may you get what you wish for. <laughs> because now we've got to make sense of it, that's the challenge. And, and to the rescue comes machine learning and, and deep learning. So this is really a collision between these two areas. So I just want to thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.